Here we go. This is Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. Chapter 4 is where we're going to be at. This is uh, literally one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. Did I say that last week? I say it every week. Well, this one, I'm not joking you. This one is so ridiculously full of stuff. I, I found a website devoted to this chapter. Okay. And, and in this website, it had like, I mean, it was like page upon page upon page about stuff in this chapter and things that I can't, I can't even get into or we would be in this chapter for literally a year. Like all the different stuff that they've discovered in this chapter and, and how the Lord could use this chapter and how many different ways you can look at it. So I'll touch on just a couple of them and I'll, I'll even give you a web, website if you want to look at it more in depth uh, in your own time because it's been just blowing my mind, the depth of this chapter. So I'm super excited to be able to look at it with you guys tonight and um, to have so many faithful believers here and get worshiping the Lord is just at a wonderful place to be, even when you've had a rough day um, and uh, or a rough life. You know? <laughs> God, uh, God is here to meet with us and to restore us and to and to be good to us. And so let's let's believe that. So let's pray. Jesus, we come to you with so much expectation and hope. God, believing, Lord, that you have good for us. You have you have great plans and you have um, a heart that longs for our good. Our prosperity, not not necessarily financially, Lord, but you long for us to be prosperous people and to have be just have a cup that's overflowing, Jesus. And Jesus, as I prayed for uh, people who I know I'd see tonight and people who I didn't know I'd see tonight. But as I as I was going through praying, Lord, you know that my heart, Lord, was stirred and touched for uh, the good things that you have for us. And so, God, we, we look forward in expectation to see those things, Lord. We don't want to um, just not, n- not be looking forward, not expecting what you have, Lord, but we want to um, believe in the good things that you have for us. So, Lord, as I'm wrestling with what that means in my life and, and for this church, Lord, that you've, uh, you've raised up here, God, I, just, I, I pray that I would see your your goodness, Lord. I just picture, Jesus, when you were on this world, that people loved being with you because you were so good. You were so friendly. You were so kind. And God, that same heart, that same personality is how you think towards me. And Lord, forgive me for any time when I think you're uh, up, up in heaven just judgmentally looking down on me. God, you are so full of kindness and love. Help me to believe that. And the Lord speak to us now through this portion of scripture. Amen. All right. Like I said, this portion of scripture, this chapter is uh, Zechariah chapter four is unbelievable. Um, just crazy what God does. So let's get right into it. Zechariah chapter four, verse one. It says, now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So. Zechariah has been going through this time, uh, this one night, the first few chapters of Zechariah, probably 10 chapters or so, are eight visions that he receives in one night. So one crazy night for Zechariah, he gets these eight different dreams or visions, and the first two we've looked at, or three probably we've looked at. 
And, and now, so he, he's kind of in this stage, it's probably, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, I don't know, maybe sometime in the middle of the night, and he's just, he's been having these visions, so he's probably just in this stupor, just like, oh my gosh, what have I been seeing? I just saw this branch and a rock with seven eyes, what is going on? That's what we looked at last week, right? So, what, he's just in this, oh, like, whatever, and so the angel comes up to him, and he wakens him up out of this stupor that he's in he's probably just emotionally exhausted and uh because what we learned about last week was jesus coming up to joshua the high priest and teaching him how to serve him and and a few amazing prophecies mixed in there with that but it was really a lesson for us and for me personally about how to serve the lord knowing him as a branch and being able to abide with him as a branch or a vine right and we learned about that. And, and then we learned about him being like a rock. And in First Peter, how the rock is how we grow in the Lord. And, and he says, if you want to serve me, abide in me and look to me to help you grow. And, and we, we looked at those things last week. So he's just been learning these things. And now he comes and he comes to his uh, Zechariah and he, say, he kind of wakes him up. You know, he's like, we're not done yet. It's an important that you're awake for this next part. Because chapter four is where it gets really good, Zechariah. I don't know if he's doing chapters at this point, but maybe. <laughs> so, Zachary, don't fall back asleep like my kids do in the morning after I wake them up. You know, it's my job in the morning to wake up my boys. So if I'm, you know, up early, then I can kind of go and I can have my devotions and I'm all, like, all peaceful when I wake them up. Child, wake up. And that happens sometimes. Most of the time. I don't get up with my alarm because I'm snoozing and I, I, I'm up and they have 30 minutes to get ready for their bus. And so I get up and I'm like, get up, it's time to get up. And I'm banging stuff and I'm shaking them and I'm pulling them off the top bunk and they're all, ah, they're freaking out. It's just my house in the morning is a good time. So I, I have I, I have good uh, illustrations in my mind for how this must look, you know, you know, that. I don't want them to fall back asleep because John, bless his heart, and, and, and Simon too, they love to fall back asleep after I've woken them up. Like, I wake them up and then, and then they're just like, oh, dad. And they, or they'll just turn right over and I'm like, guys, don't go back to sleep. And it's kind of like uh, what the Lord is doing here with Zechariah. He's like, okay, now I know that you've been through a lot already, but I got something really amazing for you. So it's important for us to be spiritually awake for this chapter, for what God is going to teach us, because he's going to give us a secret. He's going to teach us a secret today. In this chapter, there is a secret that he has for us. He's going to tell us how can we can do impossible things. Totally impossible things. Does that sound like a good secret? If you had a secret to do impossible things, would that be something you share with someone? Sure. Okay, well, God is going to do with us in this chapter. And uh, he wants us to be awake. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. That's what that verse says. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's saying, Paul was saying the same thing to the Corinthians. Awake to righteousness. Wake up. Not sinning. That's a pretty big deal that would be a pretty big secret if god would share with us the secret to having victory over sin living free from the domination of sin that's something that paul said we need to wake up to that secret 
If, when someone's life is dominated by sin, there's a very real desire in, in my life and in probably your life when you know someone that's life, their, their life is dominated by sin and they're, they're struggling, they're struggling. I know sometimes I want to yell at them, wake up! Don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see how you're going to hurt your family and your friends? Wake up! I've said that to people before. Can't you see the consequences? That's what we want to say to them, right? It's like they're sleepwalking. So I was kind of I was studying this, and so I studied sleepwalking, and I learned some stuff, so I'm going to share it with you. Sleepwalkers arise from the slow wave sleep stage. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a slow wave sleep stage. Oh, you did? Good. <laughs> I used to sleepwalk, though, i got to tell you. I used to sleepwalk. And uh, my dad said I used to have these like nightmares where I'd, I'd just be screaming, ah, and you know, I remember the nightmares, but I don't remember getting up. And he said he would talk to me and he would take me back home and uh, or back to bed. And I would get up and go upstairs and downstairs and do all kinds of crazy stuff when I was a kid. And I always had nightmares about spiders. And I hate spiders and they are the worst nightmares. And I remember in my nightmares, I could never scream. I was like, ah. That's the loudest it would come out, right? But my dad said I was actually screaming, and so he said it was terrible. But we had we had Ezekiel sleepwalk some sometimes, and it, it freaks my wife out because he'll come and he'll stand right next to her in bed and just stand there like his eyes open, and she's like sleep, sleeping, and then she's like puts her hand over, and there's a, a person there, and she opens his eye, and it's like. Squishy in Monsters University. Have you seen that guy? He, he like he scares people by just going, ah. Anyway, it's just terrifying to my wife. So sleepwalking can be crazy. So we feel like these people are sleepwalking. And Paul was saying, when you're living in sin and you're a believer, it's like you're sleepwalking. You don't see the consequences of what you're doing. Wake up to righteousness, Paul says. So the sleepwalking, uh, it's, uh, it's a stage of low consciousness and you perform activities that are usually performed during a state of full consciousness. These activities can be as benign as sitting up in bed, walking to the bathroom and cleaning, or as hazardous as cooking, driving, violent gestures, grabbing at hallucinated objects, or even homicide. Sleepwalking can be terrible. They don't see the reality or the consequences of their actions because they're asleep, obviously. Well... This one, I, this example kind of takes the cake for me. In 2005, a sleepwalking computer expert was reportedly caught by his wife mowing the lawn naked at 2 a.m. Rebecca, Rebecca Armstrong was woken by noise coming from the garden. When she realized her husband Ian was not in bed, she went downstairs to see what was happening. Rebecca found Ian mowing the lawn completely starker. She was afraid to wake him up because she had always been told it can be dangerous to disturb someone who is in sleepwalking. So she just unplugged the mower, went back to bed, and let him go on with it. With an unplugged mower. He later got back into bed and didn't believe Rebecca when she told him what he'd been up to. Man, I'm glad I've never done that. I don't know how... Did he take off his clothes? Or did he sleep naked? Anyway. Ephesians 5.14 says... Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You see, walking in the light 
brings us freedom from sin, right? That's part of this whole secret. But we're going to learn a, a bigger secret today, today from this chapter. But walking in the light, sin is darkness. So letting light in cast out the darkness. So Jesus is the light. All this is the way to overcome sin, okay? It all is, flows to the same thing, which is Jesus casts out the darkness. We don't have to yell at the darkness. Do you ever walk into a room and say, get out of here, darkness. I banish you. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, darkness. No, we never do that. We just flip on a switch, right? Well, victory in the Lord is, is, is just that easy. Victory over sin. Okay, so we have two examples in the New Testament of the of the term awake and awaking up being something that is that is dealing with overcoming sin. Okay, so two times. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter four, and we see this angel wakes up Zechariah, kind of like he's in a trance. He's he's been seeing three of these visions. Now he's he's here and he's going to see a new one. And and he says, "Wake up! What do you see? What do you see?" So I said, "I am looking." And there is a lampstand of solid gold or a menorah. You guys know what a menorah is, right? It's that seven, seven arm, seven, uh, what do you want to call them? Candle wicks on top of a gold. It's got three arms on each side and one in the middle makes seven. Okay. They're in the temple and all over Jerusalem if you go to Jerusalem. So I see this lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top. Okay. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked to me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So Zechariah, he would have been familiar with what he saw because Zechariah was a priest. He's not only... A, uh, a prophet here. He, he's not only writing the word here and acting as a prophet, but he was, his job was he was a priest. And so he would have been very familiar with menorahs and their place. So you would walk into the temple of God and there would have been a menorah on the left side right there. Okay? And this menorah, it was the priest's job to take care of it, which means they had to trim the wicks and they had to fill it with oil and they had to clean it up and they did all kinds of priestly duties Lots of churchy duties uh, for the menorah. So he, he's like, all right. So he sees he would have recognized there's a menorah, but this one is totally different. Um, instead of just the seven arms, it has a big bowl on top and it has pipes going from the bowl to the seven things. And then it's got pipes going from the bowl up to these two olive trees. So that's what he sees here. It's like totally weird. What's going on? And then the two olive trees are giving their oil directly into the bowl and it supplies the oil to the lamp. So these two oil trees have these, these pipes and they go to this bowl and then the bowl has seven pipes and it goes down to each of the seven lamps. Okay? So that's what he sees. So he would have looked at this and been like, ha-ha, no more chores. This is awesome. This is a self-sufficient lamp that always burns. It would be like if you had... A dinosaur on top of your car that was slowly decaying and dripping oil into your car as you needed it so you could drive and never have to stop for gas. We had to stop for gas on the way here. And it was awful. I hated it. Every moment of that was torture. Because it's negative one degrees outside right now. It's awful. 
But wouldn't it be great if we just had a big old dinosaur on top of our car that slowly decayed and its oil constantly supplied our fuel? That'd be fantastic. Well, that's cool. But what in the world does this mean? And Zechariah asks the same exact thing. My Lord, the angel, what does this mean? So I spoke to the angel who talked with me. This is verse four saying, what are these, my Lord? This is a great invention. Then the angel who talked with me answered, saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, that's why I asked you. Now, I don't don't understand these conversations sometimes, but he's fine with saying, I don't get this. You know, God, I don't get this. And the, the cool thing is, is God's fine explaining it to us. I like that. If you if you don't get something about the Lord, you know, come to him and ask him, ask him for revelation. Ask him, say, I don't understand your Trinity. And he'll say tough. No, he won't. He'll say here, let me let me work in your heart so that your heart can understand it. You know, I love that. I love what we talked about on Sunday about Thomas. You know, Thomas is like or Jesus is like, hey, I'm going up to heaven. It's going to be great. I'm preparing a place for you and mansions and gold and diamonds, whatever, all this stuff. And the way I know the way you know, you know how to get there. And uh, and and, um, you know where I'm going. And Thomas, he's like Zachariah here. He just asked. He's like, Jesus, we have no idea where you're going. And we don't know the way. What are you doing? What are you talking about? And Jesus is like, yeah, you do, Thomas, because I am the way. And you've been spending three years with me, getting to know me in your heart. And now your heart will be okay when I leave because you're not, it's not going to be a mystery to you because you know me in your heart. The way is known by you, not, not because you have to follow me around anymore, but because you know me in your heart, from your heart. And that's what God will do with us. When we ask a question, he might not show you the map of how to get it, but he'll minister to your heart. And you can follow him around and watch him turn bread into more bread and water into wine and all the things he did just watching him do stuff. Then all of a sudden your heart knows him a little bit better. And you're like, this is cool. I like what God's doing. So Zacharias, he's fine asking. God's fine explaining it. But the purpose of the vision is explained right here. Look in verse 6. This may be the most important Bible verse. In all the Bible, it might be. So if it's not highlighted in your Bible, you better get on top of it. It's seriously so important. You can think about this verse every day for the rest of your life, and it would bless you every day. It says, so he answered to me and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For you For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. 
So the first time you read that, your eyebrows do this and you're like, what is he talking about? This is totally crazy. But this is our bro, Zechariah. Nothing makes sense the first time you look at it, right? I mean, he called Jesus a branch and a rock in the same sentence. And you're like, bro, calm down, slow down one one thing at a time. But he doesn't do that. He's like, here's 10 illustrations all in two sentences and go for it. Spend 20 years looking at it. Okay, this is so incredible what God is saying here. And there is level upon level upon level that we can't even touch some of them tonight. But let's begin. And I'm going to begin with the historical application, what was going on at the time. So here's a little bit of history for you. Okay, 16 years earlier than this prophecy, Joshua and Zerubbabel had led 42,000 of the Jews away from Babylon. God had changed the hearts of the the king of Babylon. He said, you guys can go back. So 42,000 of the millions of Jews that were there came back. And these 42,000 are like, all right, we're going to, we have a heart for God. We want to go back to Jerusalem. What God has for us, we're going to see what God does for us. The 70 years, that captivity of 70 years was, was over. Jerusalem has been a heap of trash for 70 years. So this, they start, they come in and right away, these 42,000 people start rebuilding the temple. Great. They get all excited about it. They lay the foundation. They're all excited about the foundation. They're like, yes, this is awesome. But then they start bickering amongst each other. And their enemies start intimidating them, and they stop building the temple. They're like, ah, this is too much work. So I'm going to go build my own house since I'm living nowhere right now. So they start building their own houses, and they built themselves really nice houses, like opulent houses, just super fancy with the materials they should have been using to build the temple of the Lord. So 16 years pass. Zerubbabel, he was the civic leader. He was like the mayor. He was the guy who was in charge of this project to build the temple. And his heart was to build the temple. He's like, I want to see this work done. I want to see God's stuff done in my life, in my people, in my country, in my land. I want to see the Lord's work done. But 16 years has now passed and he hasn't been able to motivate anybody. He tried to pass laws. He tried to do, he tried to, he started committees. He started plans. He's like, we got to do the tip. We got to do something, guys. Let's do it. We have the strength. We got the manpower. And everyone's just like, bro, come on. That was 16 years ago. And so I'm sure Zerubbabel is like, given up. And so the Lord comes with this prophecy saying, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, go tell Zerubbabel. You can call him Bubba because it's easier to say than Zerubbabel. Go tell Bubba, I'm going to finish it. He's going to finish it. I'm going to do it through him. And it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So now 16 years, Haggai, Haggai, which we were, is the book right before this one, and Zechariah, they come on the scene and they both tell the people, get back to work on the temple. And work starts happening back on the temple. They do that. But why was this house supposed to be built? Here's the question. Why was this house supposed to be built? Why did God want there to be a temple in Jerusalem? The answer for us is in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles. A light to the Gentiles. So the reason why there was supposed to be a temple in Jerusalem was so that the whole world 
could have a relationship with God, could know God. You know, if you look at Jerusalem, where it's situated in the world, it's basically the center of the world. Did you know that? You got Africa and they go right up here. Well, for you guys, like this way, you got Europe right here, you got Asia here. That was the world at the time, right? America, we don't count. We're over here. But uh, it's basically the center of the world. There's even some maps made that have Jerusalem as the center of the world. And then they spread everything out from there. It's pretty cool if you've ever seen those. But God desired for all the people of the world to know him, right? Has he ever hated the Gentiles? No. I'm glad because I'm a Gentile. You guys Gentiles? Way to go, Gentiles, right? Well, yeah, we're Gentiles that know the Lord now because of a light. All right. Well, but let's get this. Okay. The Jews didn't do that, though. They didn't have this heart. Okay. They they um, they were supposed to be a light to the world. Was what Isaiah says. But they weren't doing that. They were kind of gathered in together and they they kind of had this holy huddle. They're like, God, don't let don't let them in our our little group here. And they developed this heart of of closing up. And it's definitely not what God wanted. Uh, they turned inward instead of outward. And so Jesus came along and he said, you guys are the light of the world. And he was talking to Jews at that point, but it's, it's now the church. He said, you guys are the light of the world. We even see in the book of Revelation, we see seven lampstands, right? And what does Jesus say that those seven lampstands are? The church. So the church is, the, is a completion. It's a, a, a fullness of the light of the world. That's what we're supposed to be being. You're supposed to be being a light in the world. Now, this is going to come back at the end of our study. So I want you to remember, put this in your hand right here. We are supposed to be the light. The Jews were supposed to be a light. That's why Zerubbabel was supposed to build this. That's why there's a, there's a lampstand at the beginning of this chapter, okay? He sees a lampstand. And then he says the, the reason for this vision is so that you can be a light, a light to the world, okay? So, we're going out in the world shining brightly. So God says, I'm going to finish the temple and the obstacles that stand before you, they should be made like, they look like a mountain, but they're going to be made a plain. So let's look at these, uh, these verses again. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. We're going to come back to that verse in just a minute. You, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you should become a plain. So God talks to the mountain here and he says, who are you, big mountain? So historically, Jerusalem was a giant pile of rubble right now. Where the temple should be was a giant pile of dirt and rocks and busted up stuff. All right. So Zerubbabel was like, I have so much work to do to get this done. It seems like a mountain in front of me. Now, we I grew up in Colorado Springs. We have the best mountain. I claim it as the best mountain city ever. We have a giant mountain, Pikes Peak. And so every time I picture this, I have the best illustration ever. We can see, I can see Pikes Peak from my house in Centennial. I can see Pikes Peak right there. And uh, it's a big mountain, right? And I think about sometimes, that's what Zerubbabel thinks is in front of him. And he's like, my job from God is to move that mountain. This is crazy. But God says here, it shall become a plain. That means a totally flat. All right? I, man, I just wish that we had some sort of parable or story from Jesus about a mountain, something being moved or something like that. That would be awesome. 
If Jesus explained to us, it would be so cool if Jesus did this. He was like, if you want to move, if there's something in your life and it's like a mountain, that there's some special key to you and you can just tell that mountain to go be thrown in the sea and it will. Oh, I wish Jesus just told us something like that. Don't you guys? Wouldn't that be so cool? And of course, you guys know that he does. And I think this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. I think this is what Jesus was giving us commentary on this verse when he says, if there's a mountain before you, you can say to that mountain, go be removed. If you have what? Faith, right? Faith like a mustard seed, which, of course, is the smallest seed and just the tiniest little bit of faith. Why? Why? Because it's not your might and it's not your power that's telling that mountain to get the heck out of here. It's God's spirit. And if it's his will to get that mountain out of here. So what does this speak of in our lives personally? Maybe there's a mountain of a sin in your life. And you guys have heard me say this before. Maybe whatever addiction, whatever challenge or temptation that you struggle with seems like a mountain, like I will never get over this. This is the application of this chapter in our life. This is the secret the secret is that all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is have a, a mustard seed of faith. And that mountain just disappears and becomes a plane in your life. One little bit of trust in the Lord does this as the, as the Lord is doing it. Okay, So going on in this... Um, uh, thing in this section here he says it's not by might we're going to step we're going to go back up right here again to to verse six is not by might nor by power but by my spirit might focuses on collective strength whereas power focuses on, on individual strength so what god is saying here is that it's not by the strength of many people gathering together that you can achieve victory and it's not by your own strength individually that you can achieve victory either So it doesn't matter how big your church is or how big your support group is or how big your family is or how many people think you're awesome. None of those things matter. It's only by my spirit. It's not your resources or abilities, which we've learned through Galatians, right? It's not about your resources or abilities. It's not about your desire or authority that someone gave you. But it's by my spirit. Just like the oil was going into the lampstands without human hands. See, the priests always had to fill up those lampstands, right? So now we have this picture of this super crazy lampstand with the oil, and we have the oil coming straight from these olive trees into this bowl and going in without human hands. Not by might, nor by power. And the oil speaks of his spirit. The oil is a picture of his spirit. Why is oil a picture of the spirit? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Oil is a great picture of the Spirit because, where are my notes on that? Ah, it's a lubricant, so there's no friction with oil. Uh, it's, it's a fragrance. It fra- it's used to cause things to smell better. Uh, it's, it's a fuel to burn. It's a healing balm. Oil is, you put oil in your lips or whatever, you, you hurt 
You know, so oil is used by practically it's many things that can help lead us to understand the character of the Holy Spirit. So we got to stop trying. And we got to start flowing in the Holy Spirit, flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Lord, if the Lord lays something on your heart, let's say he says you got to stop this sin. Or you need to do this. I have a great project for you. I got a whole family I'm going to have for you. Or your child needs something. Or your spouse really needs this. So he lays a project on your heart. And you lay the foundation. You get all excited about it, just like Zerubbabel. And you're like, this is great. I'm going to have the best family ever. I'm going to be the best worker at my job. I'm going to, whatever the Lord has put on your heart, whatever this project is. And then difficulties start coming, start happening. And we get all discouraged and we believe this thing is never going to happen. That's when we need to stop trying to make it happen and start just flowing in the Holy Spirit like this oil. Start allowing this oil to come. So when I get out of the way and I realize it's not about what I do, but it's about his spirit. And I realize it's not about my efforts. I can then begin to flow in his power. Spurgeon is the best preacher, man. You guys got to read some Spurgeon. Who's read some Spurgeon? Man, it is like, he blows my mind. Listen to this quote. This is awesome Spurgeon. Vintage. The necessity, or sorry, the necessary resource for God's work is the Holy Spirit. And God promises Zerubbabel a rich resource in the Spirit of God to accomplish his work. When we trust in our own resources, whether they be small or great in the eyes of man, then we don't enjoy the full supply of the Spirit. Oh, may God send us poverty. May God send us lack of means and take away our power of speech if it must be and help us only to stammer if we may only thus get the blessing. Oh, I rave to be useful to souls and all the rest may go where it will. That is a guy who gets it. Oh, my gosh, that quote rocks my world. He would rather he was like the prince. He's called the prince of preachers. He preached so many amazing Bible studies. And he said, I wish I could only stammer as long as I was useful to souls by the power of the spirit. That's all that I need. That's all that I care about. Just like Zerubbabel. That's awesome. So. Let's look. Oh, let me let me couple uh the end of verse seven there says and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace grace to it so practically with Zerubbabel he's saying the temple is going to be completed by you Zerubbabel the the capstone the part okay so picture a uh a you know one of those gates that's like like this okay so it's rocks and then they're like tilted rocks and then at the top up here you have like a almost a triangle looking rock That's the capstone. And see, all the other things leaned on that capstone. So this one's free. That capstone's Jesus, too. This is crazy. So all the things lean on Jesus. Everything Jesus is taken out. Everything crashes down. This is awesome, okay? So in our lives, the capstone of Jesus, the part that holds it all up, it's all Jesus. And then he says, with shouts of grace, grace to it. That means Nothing. Oh, this is so good. We could do a whole Bible study on this. Just this verse by itself. We might next week. I don't know. Grace, grace to it. Grace, like grace is a New Testament thing, right? No, 
totally not. This is a description of how grace works. Grace at the beginning, grace is how the work is going to begin. Grace at the end, grace is how the work is completed. Where is your efforts ever in any of this work being done? And they're nowhere. It's grace, grace to it. And all we can do is just shout grace, grace. This is so awesome. What, what do you have to add to it? Well, you can shout grace. You can yell at people about how good God's power is working through your life. That's fine. But don't try to do things on your own. Just grace, grace. He shouts grace, grace. to You could write a book on that verse. So good. Ah, but there's more. There's even more, okay? Verse 8, more, uh, Moreover, the word of the Lord came and said, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and the hands also shall finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? I want to just stop right there. So his foundation, he's, he's laying the foundation. You've laid the foundation, and his hands are going to finish it. So there's the historical prophecy there. All right? Verse 10 begins with saying, for who has despised the day of small things? And I just see that in our, our life today, this is the most perfect verse for us. We are in the first Wednesday night service of us actually being an official church. This is it. Did you realize that? We've been meeting Wednesdays forever, but this is the first one of White Flag Calvary. And it's, it's not big. We're not a huge group of people from man's eyes. But do we despise Are we despising it? And God says, don't, because for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Well, what does that mean? Oh, my gosh, this gets just crazier and crazier. OK, well, these seven, what's that talking about? It's talking about if you go down to it says the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And we've seen these seven before, haven't we? We saw these seven. And we saw that the 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 eyes of the Lord are, are the, in the previous chapter, chapter three, it says Jesus was like a stone and it had seven eyes. Okay, And these seven eyes speak of perfection. The number seven is perfection or perfect or complete. Eyes speaking of knowledge. So he perfectly knows what's going on. That was our interpretation from chapter three. But we see these guys come back, these seven eyes, and it says they rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So what does that make me think about? Well, the plumb line is literally the, the interpretation is, is that it's the um, dividing stone. It's actually a stone that they would use to divide things, okay? So you have these, these seven eyes, and they're, they're, you, they start to see Zerubbabel dividing stuff up, measuring stuff out, getting, like, they start to see progress being made in Zerubbabel's life in building the temple. And these seven, it says, they rejoice. So, why does he pick the seven eyes? And I think it's because in God's perfect knowledge, in God's perfect will, he has decided that this is the way that things should work. He didn't, this is his decision. And we're going to see this as we start studying Ephesians. He predestined that this is how it works. That you don't have to add anything to the work. You don't have to do anything. I rejoice to see that this works God says, it makes me happy to do the work for you. It makes me happy. I like doing it. And that, that to me, brings me a lot of peace. Because this isn't like a consolation like, my children are so dumb that I have to do everything for them. No, he's totally cool with it. 
In fact, this is the way that most brings him glory is when he does all the work and we just believe. And I love that. It brings him the most glory. Well, Zechariah, he gets all this information. He just is like, what is going on? Which is how I would have been, too. He didn't have 2,000 years of people studying it to explain it to him. And, but check out this because it gets even better if that's possible. So I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right hand of the lampstand and on his left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And he answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, again, that's why I asked. No, he said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So now he moves his attention from the from the this lampstand. So maybe he's getting it. Maybe he's like, okay, I get it. You know, God's power is going to flow through me. I don't, I'm, there's no human hands, no human efforts going to get this. So what are the two olive trees? All right. And the, the answer is these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So the term anointed ones in Hebrew is literally sons of oil. Sons of oil. And it's so cool because it basically describes someone who's so controlled by God's spirit that they're like, they're like a son of oil. You know, that they're so, their life is characterized by being filled and having the Holy Spirit flow through them. Okay, so who are these two? Who are these two sons of oil? Who are these two anointed ones who stand before the Lord? Well, this is where it gets crazy. Because there's a lot of different opinions on who they are. But the book of Revelation tells us who they are. Or gives us one explanation of who they are. In the book of Revelation chapter 11, it says that they are the two witnesses who come during the time of the tribulation and witness to the whole world. All right. Now, we don't have time. We do not have time. I am not going to have you turn there because there's a lot there that we could talk about. Okay, but the anointed ones could be, you know, Enoch and Elijah, as far as people go. It could be something else. It could be other people. It could be someone from the Old Testament, someone from the New Testament. There's, there's a lot of different ways that we could think about, okay, who the people are. But look at this, okay? The anointed ones could be... Um, the, the, the term anointed is, is the word, it comes from the word oil. The, ser, the term Messiah also comes from the word oil. Okay? So the word Messiah literally means like rubbed on, like oil, like you rub on oil. Okay? So it could be talking about Jesus and the spirit of Jesus as the two witnesses. Okay? The two witnesses, the two olive branches. It also could be, and I think it is also, a description of God's word. And this is the part that you, that you can go just totally lose your mind on, is that this whole chapter is actually a description of God's word. Okay, So the two branches, you have the Old Testament, this olive tree, the New Testament, this olive tree. The Holy Spirit flows out of the, the scriptures, God's word into the bowl and then divide it up and it's the light of the world. So get this, okay? For me, it's like having one hand abiding in Christ and having one hand 
reaching out to the lamp in ministry, and I'm like in the bowl, okay? So it's like electricity. The Holy Spirit is like electricity. You have to be connected to the power source and to the outlet. It has to be a, a complete circuit, right? It has, to, it has to be the circuit. And if you're not outletting, the Holy Spirit won't be flowing. This is crazy. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses. Light to the world. Do you get it? All right. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you position yourself in this place where you're being a light to the world. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you be a light to the world. You abide with this hand and you be a light with this hand. And that's how it works. The Holy Spirit will flow through you. It's not some crazy magic words you have to say, abracadabra, Jesus loves me ten times, and Mother Mary. You don't have to know the right way to do anything. You just have to have a desire to be a light to the world and be connected to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has a pipe to flow through. So now you guys are a pipe. How many different analogies are in this, this chapter? This is crazy. It's awesome. Jesus said we should ask for this power. Ask for his Holy Spirit. Are you stalled? Are you stuck in your Christian life, in your, in your world right now? You don't have any idea like Zerubbabel how to make this stuff happen? Well, we just don't try to get it. We just reach out our hand in humility and faith. Humility to the Lord, asking him. Faith, okay, I, I believe I'm supposed to be a light, so here you go. We just reach out, and God will supply. His Holy Spirit will be able to flow through us. And the cool thing is God wants his supply and our reliance on his Holy Spirit to be continual. He doesn't say this is a one-time thing. For that one time, you need to be a light. He wants you to be a light every day. He wants you guys to have someone sitting with you next week that you were a light to, that you brought, and you said, hey, I've got to tell you about the light. I mean, I want to be a light to you. I want to bring light. I want to see that happen in my life. So, the, uh, there's so much more in there, guys. I literally scratched the surface and I'm really tempted to just keep going, but we can't. We got to go. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much. God, for a chapter that is just so deep with meaning and with vision, God, with explanation of how you're, you work in truth, God, and I, I thank you so much that we can just trust you. We can just reach our hands out in humility and faith and see you do awesome and wonderful things. And Lord, I want to pray specifically and, and purposefully right now for anyone in here who feels stuck, who feels like they don't, they're not getting it, they're not pleasing you, they're not being a light. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to hear the promise that the foundation has been laid in their life and the capstone will be set in place. That Jesus will be exalted in their life. Jesus will have the highest point in their life. 
Jesus will be everything and that process will happen in their life. I pray that they would believe it. And Lord, that they would just reach out their hand to abide in you, in the tree, Lord God, and and reach out their hand to be a light. God, bless us, Lord. We, we desire to be a light to this world. Every single community that we're a part of and all our different jobs and everything that's going on, God, we want to shine your light, Jesus. So please, Lord God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your, your answer to that is always yes and amen. Never do you ever deny that request when someone asks you with their heart. So God, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.